Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. Now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. My name is Kevin Ray, and I am your host. I'm here with Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. We want to thank you for joining us in the Housing Hour. We want to point out real quick before we get started how you can plug in with us, and that is by going to thehousinghour.com, and you can listen to shows, past shows. You can share those with your friends and family, certainly. And you can also plug in with us as well through all of our social media outlets, um, facebook.com slash the housing hour. You can also plug in with us at Twitter at the housing hour. So also we want to thank mortgage investors group, certainly for sponsoring our show. And today we have a very important guest on with us. We have Dr. Peter Pry, um, Dr. Peter Pry, and he is the executive director of the task force on national and homeland security. It's an, a congressional advisory position and a very, very um, vast knowledge about our infrastructure. And we're going to talk to him at length. So first, we want to thank Dr. Pry for joining us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me to discuss this esoteric but uh, vitally important subject. Now, one of the big things that you focus on is the protection of our infrastructure. So you, you have a lot of background that I wanted to discuss because one of the things that you're passionate about is protecting Americans. So tell me how that all started. Why did you why did you get into what you're doing? And tell us a little bit about your past. Well, um, I guess it begins with uh, uh, my interest in uh, protecting the country. I, maybe my past goes back to my great-grandfather, who had been a... Uh, fought against the communists during the Russian Revolution. You know, he was a general in the Tsar's army. And our side lost, and then my family came over here. Uh, 1921? You know, right. And, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, we're, we were passionately anti-communist, very concerned that Americans were naive and were eventually going to uh, uh, be taken over by the communists, and we didn't want to see that happen here. And, um, uh, you know, my parent, my my. My father and uncle fought in World War II in the U.S. Army. You know, uh, you know, we were raised with uh, great concern about the national security of our country and especially the threat from the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, I knew what I wanted to do when I was 13 years old, and I read Herman Kahn's on thermonuclear war because it seemed to me that the nuclear balance, that was the way that the Soviet Union would be able to overcome the United States in the nuclear war. And uh, that's indeed what their military writings were all about. They believed you could fight and win a nuclear war and that they would be able to prevail. So eventually I, I ended up going into the CIA, you know, where I, my specialty was nuclear weapons and strategy. And uh, one of the specialties, even within that area, was a little-known phenomena uh, that I had learned about called electromagnetic pulse, you know, where with a single nuclear weapon you could detonate it at high altitude over the center of the United States, or really anywhere over the United States. And it would be so high that people wouldn't hear the blast. Uh, on a cloudy day, you wouldn't see the flash. You wouldn't even know a nuclear weapon had gone off. There'd be, no, there'd be no blast effects on the ground, no radioactive fallout, no thermal effects. The only thing that would be created would be a super, an EMP, which is basically like a super energetic radio wave that's mm. got so much energy in it that it will destroy electronics. 
it's, it, its prompt effects, its immediate effects are harmless to people. It'll pass right through your body without doing any harm. But it'll stop automobiles, destroy computers. The worst thing is that it would bring down the electric grid, which puts mm. the whole society in the blackout. You know, everything that has anything to do with electronics could be damaged and destroyed. And in effect, it takes away the modern critical infrastructures that makes it possible for us to support our big population. Yeah. Now, the Soviets had planned to use this to win a nuclear war. Uh, they weren't so inter- much interested in attacking our civilian critical infrastructures as they were using EMP to fry our missiles and bombers and, uh, and the uh, ballistic missiles on our submarine support and interfere with our communications so we wouldn't be able to, to communicate with our submarines and win a nuclear war in that way. Um, Let's, uh, can we step back a moment because sure. this is great information. When you were... When you were going through your learning process to get to the point where you have been armed with all of this information, because your schooling, you went to, you had your PhD from a school in New York, actually your undergraduate, I'm sorry, in political science, and then you went to USC to get your PhD in strategic studies um, under Bill Van Cleve, I believe. And, yes, that's right. And then that's where you really learned um, because of one of the, the books that you wrote about the Israeli nuclear um, infrastructure and weaponry, um, you started to really understand this whole scope that was in front of you. And you actually spent time in Los Alamos, I believe, and um, got a certificate, I believe, on, on nuclear design. So you started to, that's really where you were primed to be able to do what you're doing today. Can you talk a little bit before we get to the big stuff, which I do want to get to, can you talk about, because I'm so interested in it, how it was that you got into the CIA? I believe that one of the reasons was because of the book that you wrote, if I'm not mistaken. Could you talk a little bit about that before we get to the bigger stuff? Sure. Well, let me, uh, I'll have to, uh, it's not that often people are that interested in my own personal background, <laughs> but let me back up then to yeah, please. Herman Kahn's Unthuma Nuclear War when I was 13, because I became, I started preparing myself at the age of 13 to go into the CIA. You know, I, I, I thought about, uh, you know, read everything I could get my hands on. Uh-huh. Uh, I built a little library of bo- books. I had uh, Glassstone's the, Effect, the Effects of Nuclear Weapons, which is probably the single best unclassified book you, you could have on it, and uh, became familiar with the various arguments uh, uh, during the, uh, the uh, when, uh, for schoolwork, uh, uh, you know, when I would write term papers and things like that, I'd always try to to write something about military history or about nuclear strategy uh-huh. or something related to strategic studies to prepare myself, you know, for this uh, for this future, not just a career, but a vocation of trying to protect our country and keep it safe the way my father's generation had in World War II and, you know, and, and the way my great-grandfather had tried to tried to save the world from communism, you know, uh, but failed during the Russian Revolution. You said at uh, one point that strategic studies was not a politically correct thing to go into. Why did you say that? Because it wasn't. Uh, it was uh, the, uh, the first, where I did my first, I got two PhDs. My first was from the State University of New York at Binghamton, and mm-hmm. it had to be in history because you could not get a degree in military science or in strategic studies anywhere in the United States at that time. This was during the 1970s, okay, mm-hmm. uh, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War protests and all the rest. Uh, you know, you were considered a fascist if you were interested in that sort of thing. And there were basically only three universities in the whole country that offered degrees in strategic studies. University of Chicago, 
George, well, four, George Washington University, Georgetown, and University of Southern California. And that was pretty much it, uh, uh, you know, because it was so politically incorrect. And even if you wanted to write, uh, I ended up getting my first degree in history because history was the closest you could come to something like strategic studies. Mm. And by accident, I think it was actually the best preparation because yeah. I think there is no better preparation than reading and understanding history uh, to understand how wars start, how they're won and lost, uh, uh, the follies of, of the assumptions that many people make people, highly intelligent people like Neville Chamberlain, who have theories about how the world works, but they end up shipwrecking against the reality of the times and the fact that they don't understand the other side and how it really thinks and what they plan to do. That's a re- recurrent theme in history that you don't get from a political science or even a strategic studies background. So I think history was the best preparation. And so I wrote a lot of, you know, and I tried to focus, uh, you know, whenever I w- would write a paper, I'd write papers on, on, on the military history of various eras, right, ranging from the classical period of Greek and Ro- Greece and Rome, you know, all the way up to, you know, the 21st century, the D-Day invasion and all the rest. So it was a very... So studying history was a very good grounding, and it was another ground, good grounding for another respect, because almost all of my professors from undergraduate school through graduate school were, were liberal. Many of them were Marxists, frankly, self-professed <laughs> Marxists. And so I, and I, I, I uh, got in a lot of debates and arguments with these guys and learned how, that's, how they think yeah, about right. things. And that, and that was uh, uh, perhaps some of the best preparation. Uh, you know, to st- and it's an it's a an advantage that I think conservatives can get from our liberal universities. You know, which are 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 not fair and balanced in their point of view. Uh, in a, in a sense, it's a negative thing because because I mean I was uh, I was not tolerated. You know, as a conservative in mm-hmm. graduate school, my my apartment got trashed. They painted a swastika on my car. Uh, some of these professors, I was there in a scholarship because mm. I had done so well academically, and I had to constantly defend that scholarship. The leftist professors were trying to get me uh, to take away my scholarship, but I was defended by you know the, a small number of people who were of conservative view, or who, or even if they weren't conservatives, they at least uh, were honest academics mm-hmm. and and, uh, and didn't like to see that political correctness. Well, I'm afraid you. to say that a quarter century onward. I, I, I'm afraid to think about what the environment must be like for modern conservative students, because I'll bet yeah. those guys are not represented anymore. No. And, uh, no. uh, and uh, that if you're a conservative student today, there's probably nobody that's there to defend you. And, uh, you know, these people probably end up losing their scholarships or having to uh, conform to the yeah. politically correct views within those universities. Absolutely. So you wrote a book, and it was not published until 1986, but you wrote it well before that. It must have been just after you graduated, I guess, from USC. No, I actually wrote that when I, well, I, was, I was doing the research and was in the process of writing Israel's nuclear arsenal when I, uh, uh, during the 1970s, mm. uh, beginning in the early 1970s, wow. uh, when I was working on my undergraduate degree. Oh, okay. Uh, there was a, a little-known book. That wasn't my first book. There was a book I wrote before that called The Last Ditch, and it was a military history of, uh, of the last great battles uh, that had, had been fought by various civilizations just before they went under, like the Battle of Zama that concluded the Second Punic War. Almost nobody knows about that, but uh, <laughs> about that one. And I was probably, I'll have to look that up. 
but that, that was my uh, that was actually my first book, and I wrote that when I was in my late teens, early twenties. Then I wrote Israel's Nuclear Arsenal when I uh, you know was when I was in my uh, mid mid twenties, and I was uh, working my way through college on my undergraduate degree. And at the same time, I uh, uh, let's see. Uh, that that book was a long a long time in the process because in Utica, New York, you know the I mean I did research out of the library there in Utica, New York, and I, it was a, a pretty amazing what I was able to get. If you, it was a good experience because it taught me how to do research. And a time that people don't even now people can Google things and that sort of thing. We mm-hmm. didn't have that back in those days. Right. You know? We and just it was all paper the research, <laughs> and you had to get books and papers from other libraries from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I managed to do that out of the Utica Public Library and put together the, the basis for that uh, That's that book, remarkable. which I continue to work on. Yeah, I I find I uh, I finished it and got it published. Uh, as you said, uh, the uh, uh, but it hadn't been written before. Uh, it was it was it was it was uh, it was written before I went into USC, and it got published while I was uh, there was the publisher Westview Press. I mean, I don't know why they took so long, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, uh, uh, I think it got published just before I left uh, uh, USC. Gotcha. But in between, in between degrees, after I got my my. Uh, my first PhD at the State University of New Why York. don't you hang on to that thought, Dr. Pry? Because we're coming sure. up on a hard break, and when we get back from this break, we're gonna we're gonna let you finish conclude that thought. But then I want to also get into the big stuff, the stuff that is imminently, potentially dangerous to all of society, and what we can do about it, what you've already done about it, and why we're not doing what it is that you're suggesting. So we're gonna continue this conversation right after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And welcome back into the Housing Hour. Again, it's Kevin Ray. I'm here with Dr. Peter Pry, and he is the Executive Director of the Task Force on National and Homeland Security. And we certainly appreciate him taking the time to speak with us. And before we had went to break, you were talking about your time um, at USC and the fact that you had to fight against liberal professors to kind of debate. And it really prepared you, honestly, for a world that is really hardened its heart against conservative, um, mainstream, common sense thinking. And, you know, there's a balance that needs to be had there. But you were talking about that. And I, I wanted to kind of get forward, if it's okay, and go ahead and finish your thought, if you remember what you were speaking about. Sure. Well, the liberal professors were in New York, at the State University of New York system. There's no liberals in and California? There are plenty of liberals in California, <laughs> but the best educational experience I had, uh, you know, where they were politically fair to conservatives, was at USC studying under Bill Van Cleve, I see. who had been uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, advisor. But in between the, the getting my degree in history at the State University of New York, uh, you know, I, I went into the refugee resettlement program, uh, you know, helping resettle the victims of communism in Southeast Asia, the boat wow. people who were living in concentration camps. That's then topical I studied today, under, huh? Yeah, then I went on to get my degree in strategic studies, my 
second doctorate in, in strategic studies at the University of Southern California under Bill Van Cleve. War, the uh, built book, Israel's Nuclear Publish, uh, Arsenal, got published in 1984, and I went to work for the CIA in 1985. That's and uh, that's where I got my certificate in nuclear weapons design. They sent me to, you know, the nuclear weapons labs and uh, mm. and uh, taught me how to build nuclear bombs as well uh, while I was pursuing, uh, you know, uh, working for them on Soviet nuclear nuclear strategy and weaponry. And before, while you were waiting for your clearance and background check, you worked at the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, which is no longer exists, and it, and it helped you to um, understand the compliance aspects and how, you know, when you're in an arms race and then you decide not to be in an arms race, you know, there are certain, you know, agencies that monitor whether each country is compliant. And so you were an integral part, I guess, in your area of that as well, correct? Yeah, I was what they call a verification analyst to check to see was the Soviet Union honoring the arms control agreements that we signed with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to your audience, but they weren't. They were in gross violation mm-hmm. of that, although the State Department didn't like to talk about that in public. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and State Department was about, was about a cottage industry to churn out arms control agree- uh, treaties. Uh, it didn't seem to matter to them that much that the treaties did not actually work. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because I'm just putting the pieces together here, and as much as I know what our show is about, and it's about the electric grid and geomagnetic storms and all that, I do need to take this opportunity because of the timing. While you were in the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament, must have been around the time of the 1983 nuclear war scare. Can you talk about that newly, recently declassified event? Yeah, the... Uh, uh there was a training exercise in 1983 when we were first going to move the Pershing II missiles uh, into NATO Europe. And the reason for that was because the Soviet Union had been deploying a new category of missile. It's called a theater nuclear missile, uh, which was designed to target the, our European allies. It's called the SS-20. And they were turning these things out once a week. And it was, frankly, it was undermining the NATO alliance. It's threatening to split the NATO alliance because we didn't have any nuclear counter to that thing. There were no theater nuclear missiles deployed in NATO Europe, just battlefield missiles. And um, the uh, so when we developed the Pershing II and the ground launch cruise missile to move them over there to balance the SS-20s, you know, uh, the view, and this was during the Reagan administration, for which I have great admiration, but uh, the view was that uh, that the Soviet Union would understand that we were just balancing them, and, you know, that this was an attempt to defend ourselves because mm-hmm. their actions were so clearly aggressive and uh, so clearly designed to split the NATO alliance. Uh, and we did not understand, even the Reagan administration, which was very hawkish in its views, you know, a lot of people subscribe to this idea that mutual assured destruction works, that nobody thinks that they can win a nuclear war, that nobody wants to start a nuclear war. Well, that really wasn't true. You know, in the, in the Soviet view, you could win a nuclear war. And that's why we're de- they were de- deploying those SS-20s. They were trying to de- position themselves so they could win a nuclear war. And they assumed that we thought the same thing, and that, the, uh, that, the, uh, and that our, all of our talk about arms control and nuclear war is unwinnable, that that was just propaganda that, that, that we were using to try to lull them into a false assurance. They had been planning to launch a first strike all along. And so when they saw us positioning similar kinds of weapons into Western Europe, you know, that were within 
a very short flight time to Moscow, uh, they jumped to the conclusion that, well, I shouldn't say they jumped to the conclusion. They had a special intelligence program called Varian, which stands for Surprise Nuclear Missile Attack. They assumed all along that we were going to try to do the same thing to them that they were planning to do to us, mm. and that eventually, or perhaps in the near term, in the near term, you know, that we were going to get ready to launch a first strike at some point, just the way they were doing, uh, trying to position themselves to do that against us, to launch a disarming first strike and basically win a nuclear war and take over the world. Mm-hmm. And they misconstrued this theater nuclear exercise, it was called Able Archer 83, as our effort to do exactly that. And um, we had no idea that this was their perception of what was going on. So it was a one-sided nuclear crisis that was even more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is and had that exercise had that exercise continued another 24 hours, they probably would have launched a massed nuclear surprise attack to preempt to preempt what they thought was our preparation to launch a surprise attack against them. But the exercise ended 24 hours before they were going to push the button, and uh, that's and amazing. that's what saved the world. And we didn't even know it uh, until. Uh, the intelligence community debated endlessly about what was going on during Able Archer 83. Uh, we had a major defector called Gordievsky who brought out deeply classified information from the Russian Soviet side. And it wasn't until 1990, seven years later, that the intelligence community came to the conclusion in this blue ribbon report done by the president's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board that, yeah, this was an incredibly dangerous moment, more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. That the Soviets were uh, were very paranoid and were were preparing to launch a, a nuclear surprise attack against us that had been triggered by their overreaction, their paranoid overreaction to to our to our theater nuclear exercise. And uh, that report, the Pifiab report uh, about the Able Archer eighty three event thirty two years ago, has just recently been declassified. Mm. I, I wrote an article about it in Family Security Matters. But now people can read for themselves, you know, about uh, the, the 1983 near nuclear Goddard Damarung that was uh, that was the uh, nuclear war scare of 1983. And I think that's a very it's worth reading about and Absolutely. becoming familiar with, because well, I think our own times are just as dangerous. Mm. You know, we've got a uh, you know the Russians haven't changed. Uh, they're not called the Soviet Union anymore, but the Russian general staff is the same kind of general staff. They have the same mindset. They're very paranoid. They, they've never thought the Cold War ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, the GRU, Russian military intelligence, has that same paranoid attitude. Uh, they actually rely on nuclear first strike, and, and, and uh, they're modernizing their nuclear uh, forces, uh, whereas we have neglected ours. Mm. And they rely more heavily on striking first and surprise in their military doctrine and exercises than the Soviets did during the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, well, so we, only have, we only have about a minute left in this segment, and I would want people, our listeners, to look that up and read more about it and read your article. We're actually going to find that information and post that to our site as well. But because of we're just limited in time, I, I would be able to spend the whole hour just talking about that. So let's, let's move to the next segment. When After we get back from this break, we're going to get into this question, Dr. Pry, and that is um, which is more of a threat to the U.S. right now, kind of a natural Carrington-class superstorm or a nuclear EMP attack? So why don't you think about that for a second, and then when we get back from these messages, we're going to talk about that. We'll be right back. 
Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the housing hour. Again, this is Kevin Ray. Thank you guys for joining us. And I want to jump right back in with Dr. Pry because we don't have much time. We have about uh, 10 minutes left in this segment. Um, Dr. Pry, there's there's dissenting views, certainly, about whether an, an EMP or even um, that type of attack that we are going to even have anything like that happen. Well, certainly that would be the surprise attack. Nobody would know about it. But, you know, there is also natural um, storms that happen from the sun, which cause big, massive problems. And you, I've heard you speak about um, that we have this magne- magnetosphere that God created essentially to protect us that would not be able to sustain a large, uh, really, um, a Carrington-class superstorm, which would enable, I mean, if we had another one that happened in 1921 with the infrastructure that we have now, we'd probably wipe out the entire country. Yes, that's right. Uh, The 1921 uh, geomagnetic superstorm was only one-tenth as powerful as the Carrington event of 1859. Mm. And yet the National Academy of Sciences calculates that uh, if we had a recurrence of the 1921 geomagnetic superstorm, uh, it would cause a blackout that would last four to ten years across the entire nation uh, if, if recovery was possible at all. Which we would all die in that, in that situation. I hate to be gloomy like that. Right. The Congressional EMP Commission estimated that if we had a nationwide blackout lasting just one year, uh, up to 90% of our population would perish from starvation, disease, and, uh, and societal collapse. And, um, yeah, and this, is a, this is a great concern because however one may feel about the nuclear EMP threat or about radio frequency weapons and non-nuclear weapons in the hands of, uh, in the hands of terrorists or other adversaries, uh, uh, a geomagnetic superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event, uh, is, uh, which would affect the entire world, not just North America, but would collapse electric grids worldwide and put billions of lives at risk, that is inevitable. Um, the likelihood of it occurring right. is 100 uh, percent. NASA estimates that the probability is about 12 uh, percent per decade, you know, which virtually guarantees that within our lifetimes or that of our children, mm-hmm. you know, we are going to experience a, re- a return of something like the, the Carrington event. In fact, uh, on July 25, 2012, we almost, we narrowly missed that return. A coronal mass ejection, a Carrington-class coronal mass ejection, crossed the path of the Earth and almost hit us. We just missed it by three days. So um, we're actually overdue. Most scientists, uh, you know, say we're overdue for the return of the Carrington event because it's supposed to happen about once every century or so. And, uh, you know, 1859 was more than a century ago. Right. So, uh, we're overdue you know, by 50 years. That. Yeah, exactly. Now, you... you really have made it your life's goal to help our government understand the ways that we can protect ourselves. And some of the, to save time, some of the things that you suggested, some of the findings were that we, you know, have spare generators because there's only a few hundred generators that we have that would be kind of vulnerable to uh, EMP, natural or um, nuclear. 
and you suggested things like having spare transformers that might cost $100 million, but what a small price to pay to save our whole society. Um, surge arresters, also redesigning the system control in, um, I think you called it SATAs, or SCADA, excuse me, and a simple fuse. Um, having contingency plans. We've had contingency plans to save people in Africa from starvation, but yet the government has no contingency plans to save Americans as far as the lack of food goes. Also protecting the, fu the, the fuel and having extra fuel for the emergency generators. Um, and then also putting more money into diesel elect electric locomotives. Why have these things, and maybe they have, because maybe you need to um, catch us up, but have some of these things been implemented yet? Uh no, uh, uh, except uh, except in some states, because uh, uh, back in 2013, a couple of years ago, I became so frustrated with the gridlock in Washington. And, and, and let me add, the Congress has tried. Uh, the House uh, oh. of Representatives has uh, passed the GRID Act unanimously. It passed the SHIELD Act unanimously. You'd think uh, every member of Congress came together, conservatives and liberals alike, to pass bills that were designed to protect us from a uh, an EMP catastrophe, whether it came from nature or man, uh, and and but the found, founders did not intend Washington to be, become so corrupted uh, that that we've got a situation where a single senator, even if the entire House of Representatives passes a bill unanimously now, it only takes one senator to put a hold on that bill so it can't come to the floor for a vote, and that senator doesn't even have to take public responsibility; they can do it. Uh, anonymously, and that has happened twice with the Shield Act and the Grid Act, where the will of the entire House of Representatives has been thwarted. So, uh, uh, two years ago, I decided to take these issues directly to the states with my task force, mm -hmm. and we started in the state of Maine. And it, and whereas Washington, in, in seven years, has not passed, succeeded in passing a bill to protect the American people, it remained six months to pass a bill, and Maine is actually in the process of starting to to harden their electric grid against DMP uh, as we speak. Uh, the same thing was done in Virginia. Senator Bryce Reeves uh, passed a bill in Virginia, and they're actually further ahead than anybody. The state of Virginia is, is, no kidding. is, is well down the road to protecting their grid. The state of Florida, uh, Governor Scott stood up a cyber and EMP legislative working group of the Florida State Legislature, I should say, uh, with his, working with his uh, emergency manager there. One of the things I mean I was have been educating the states about is that you can island a state grid. You know, you can if you protect, the, the, you can keep the lights on in your state, even though it's part of a larger regional grid. Uh, if you put in the surge arresters and Faraday mm -hmm. cages and blocking devices, the known technologies that are not all that expensive, and take these these uh, these prudent steps to protect the grid. And uh, uh, so it's not necessary for the whole country to be vulnerable. If the people within a state get up and, and, and demand that their governor, their state legislature, their utilities protect them, protect their, their grid, that state could survive through one of these things. And so far, uh, Arizona, Florida, Virginia, and Maine have all passed initiatives. And we're working on other states trying to get Texas to do it. If I have to do it, we'll do it one state at a time until the whole country is protected. But what I'm hoping okay. is that... If we get enough states uh, doing this, that it'll break the logjam in Washington. And uh, we do have two pieces of legislation now in front of the Congress that have passed both uh, that have uh, that have passed the House. And uh, uh, you know, I'm, I have high hopes that this time 
the, the bills will pass and, uh, and that we'll have a solution beginning at the federal level. This could be the year that we turn the corner on this. But as we speak, most of the country, except for those four states, nothing is being done to protect any of the other states. Is the Smart Grid Act a part of that? Oh, no. The Smart Grid actually, from an EMP point of view, is the dumb grid because it will actually uh, add another layer of technology that's vulnerable mm. to EMP and will make it harder to protect and recover the grid. What, what is the there a way to grid. have them coexist, a smart grid and a protected grid? Sure. You just make sure those smart grid technologies are, are, are hardened against EMP. It only adds uh, 1% to 6% uh, to the cost of something when you're, when you're designing it. To, uh, to make it protected against EMP. So well, and you said a fuse, a 10 cents extra per fuse for the SCADAs. Is that, is that true, or were you just joking? Well, that's not true of all the SCADAs. Right. That, as an, I used that as an example. When yeah. the commission was testing SCADAs against EMP, mm-hmm. there was a SCADA that was uh, uh, universal. It was uh, a very common SCADA used for traffic control systems. It, regulates all the uh, traffic lights, it's used in air traffic control towers, it's used in railroad switching stations, and this thing was very vulnerable to EMP. But by uh, diagnosing and finding out what was wrong with this, we found that there was a, uh, another fuse available. It was a, a fuse in the SCADA, one fuse that was burning out. Mm-hmm. And if you replace that fuse with another fuse, I actually think it was like a, uh, uh, I think it was a nickel more expensive than uh, than than the, than the existing fuse. For a, for the cost of a nickel, that SCADA could be hard, protected against DMP. Yeah. Well, in securethegrid.com um, is something that I would recommend people go to to learn more as well, because it talks really well about the electrical grid vulnerabilities. And I think what you're doing is amazing because a lot of people in the United States, and I don't know what it is, doctor, but so many people are in denial about this. And, and I think that, you know, there's certainly those out there that are thinking, well, this could never happen. This could never happen. But I look at it the same as faith for me. Either I can believe the truth or I can choose to say, well, there's a chance that the Bible is not correct. Well, why don't I just dive in and just do it? Because the the other alternative, if I'm wrong, well, that's a big problem. Why do people have this layer of denial? In the in let's, we're going to tackle that in our last segment, but think about that because I think that's important to break through to some of these people out there listening. Why is there such denial? So join us right after these messages. We'll be right back. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. Thank you guys for joining us. We have Dr. Peter Pry with us, Executive Director of the Task Force on National and Homeland Security. And Dr. Pry has agreed to do another show with us, so we're going to have that packaged and ready for you very, very soon. But before we do that, we want to end our show today, our five-minute segment that we have here. And Dr. Pry, I had mentioned about this layer of denial that exists. I think it not only exists with the American people, unfortunately, but it also exists amongst our government in a lot of ways. Can you speak to that? And I know you've been dealing with that ever since, you know, you can remember. 
Right. Well, I think it has it has to do with a lot of things. In part, it has to do with our strategic culture. You know, we're a nation of optimists, and we always tend to look on the bright side of things. Right. And uh, and that tends to lead to denial to the about the dark side and about how things can go wrong. We always think that that things are going to work out well. The arms control treaty is going to work. The bad guys will never attack us. Uh, you know, we will always foresee the attacks. And that's why we're always being taken by surprise when catastrophes do happen. So I think, in part, it's rooted in our strategic culture. You know, if you go back over our history, we do have a bad record of always being taken by surprise, even mm-hmm. when the writing was there, there, there on the wall. I think another part of the problem is, of course, where EMP is concerned, this stuff was deeply classified up until the EMP Commission decided to decla- put out declassified reports and reveal this information to the world up until 2008, uh, you know, this ba- stuff was basically deeply declassified. And so now we're sort of springing on people this mysterious existential threat called EMP that most people never heard of before, you know, right. and the re- there's a reason because it was, uh, it was, it was deeply classified. And um, the, uh, the idea of a geomagnetic superstorm was also something the commission came up with. I was actually in the room when Dr. Graham conceived of the idea and and, uh, and so the science on that is relatively, you know, is relatively new. So the natural EMP threat, too, is not something that's... And, and, and last, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I think another reason, unfortunately, is, uh, is, is there has been a lot of irresponsible use of science. Call it junk science. I mean, it doesn't help, you know, when the president is so fixated in trying to sell this idea of climate change as being the biggest threat to our national security when the science for that is, well, to be charitable, extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never been a single, the way, there is a process for our system, a, a, a way to, uh, that we're supposed to do things in our constitutional republic. You're supposed to have, if you, have, you want to make dramatic changes and uh, uh, policies that are going to affect people's lives in a profound way, the, the way the administration would to so-called supposedly protect us from climate change, you have to be sure that that science is right, and the process we have, it's a, you establish a commission, a presidential commission or a congressional commission. You know, we've never had a single commission of any kind. You know, it's all uh, basically taking the word of the United Nations, that, uh, which is, and if you look at the people in the United Nations, you know, they're a bunch of green peacers, they people, they're, they're, they're socialists, they're people who believe in big government solutions, and I, I think it is true that climate change is being used as an excuse to basically impose a statist solution on our on our society. Well, I and agree so, with that. Well, there is also the movie The Inconvenient Truth. <laughs> I guess that. Right. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. And so people, you know, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's hurt the credibility of science and scientists that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, and so when people hear, "Oh, here's another they come you come along with EMP." Well, we've had people need to know, though, we've had multiple, we've had two congressional commissions come to the same conclusion and multiple major U.S. government studies. So it's been, the science is, is really settled where EMP is concerned. Well, Dr. But they, Pry- but they hear that as, they, oh, they share that same assumption for climate change. Right. And so, you know, so naturally people are, are skeptical. Well, and I think that the skepticism needs to be removed from one's thinking and if they can just go out there and research it for themselves but dr pry we're going to do our part in educating our listeners and we're going to continue to do that but for now i want to thank you for joining us and guys we'll see you next time right here on the housing hour
That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know. So come here to find out. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.